Hi, it's David here. Before we start today's episode, um, we discussed some adult issues. So if you are listening to this in the car, um, you may want to skip to one of our previous episodes. Um, as part of those adult subjects, we we do talk about suicide and some other uh, mental health related issues. If you are struggling at this time and you need someone to talk to and the issues that are raised in this podcast, um, you know, feel relevant to you we always recommend contacting the Samaritans you're able to talk to them 24 hours a day 365 days a year all you've got to do is dial 116 two, sorry 116 123 and it's free from any phone you can also even email them these days at joe at samaritans.org um, and there will always be someone available to help and listen um, as I say enjoy the episode but as I say if any of these subjects resonate please feel free to contact the Samaritans. Simon, how's it going? Oh, Dave, what a weekend of rugby. Did you see that? Did you yeah, see all four pretty... of the games? I've yeah. never seen rugby played at such a high tempo in my life. Um, and it started from the, the very first game, did it with Argentina and Wales. Yeah. And then I was gutted for the Irish, absolutely gutted. You know, I thought they were going to make it through, but they just, again, the, the, the Kiwis turned up and just turned yeah. it on, didn't they? Um, I still think there was a debatable forward pass, but uh, it's not going to get us anywhere, I don't think now. Then the English, you know, they actually did well against Fiji, but they're excited to watch Fiji, aren't they? Yeah. Just the, the speed they play at and the, the aggression. And then finally, best game of the lot was the uh, the South Africans versus the French. That was unbelievable. Very good, wasn't it? Uh, that first half, it was like watching a football match, the speed that they were going yeah. at. And you think, these guys are taking heavy hits. How are they managing to keep getting up and drive I on? Yeah, exactly. I, it, I'm a bit worried for this weekend. I'm, I'm not. Oh, it could be a cricket score, can it? If yeah, the South yeah. Africans turn up yeah. uh, for both teams, Argentina against you know the Kiwis, and then <laughs> ourselves against South Africans, it could be a cricket score. So hopefully, it won't be. It won't be as uh, as embarrassing as the, the the cricket itself losing to Afghanistan. No, uh, no. You know they must be super proud know. of the Afghanistanis, but. Uh, we've lost our way a little bit. And then England last night, you know, yeah. Bellingham. Every time I watch him, he just seems to get better. And it's it's astounding that he's 20. Yeah. You know, he just I seems think, to have this supreme confidence. He's going to be the best player in the world, isn't he? If he continues on this trajectory, it's hard to see yeah. how he wouldn't be because he just seems to take everything in his stride. Now, whether he's had any hiccups yet and, um, you know, yeah. Has he had any stumbles along the way and how he responds back from that? I think that's a big indicator of uh, what type of professional you, you go on to come. Uh, and I suppose that does lead us on quite nicely to our guest today. So uh, we've got David Wilkes on and um, I've met David through LinkedIn and just shared posts and love watching the work that he's done. And from his own experience, and David will be able to confirm if I'm accurate here, he was on a player pathway when he was younger, but then ha experienced an injury 
And then how does that come back from that? I think he'll have some tremendous insights on, you know, how players do that and how he's tried to support people within that that field. So I think we can go and learn a hell of a lot from uh, David around mental health and recovery. And uh, I'm really looking forward to his insights. So, David, welcome today. How are you? Okay. I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be here and actually be keyboard warriors, but actually speaking voice terms for change. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I said um, I'm so looking forward to it because I have watched your work and I do repost things and um, reading the articles that you do put on. And I know that you're really committed to the work that you do and trying to improve the mental health and well-being within your communities and across the sporting field. And we've both experienced trying to break into that space and, you know, try and raise awareness. Uh, and it's an ongoing challenge, isn't it, of trying to raise awareness within that sporting field. So um, it'll be great just to, to, to listen to your bio and give our listeners a bit of your background and where you've come from and how you've ended up where you've ended up. So, uh, we'll hand over the mic to you and you can, you know, take us on that journey. Right. So I think I have to go all the way back because my journey is um, everything's interlinked from more or less childhood. So where I am now as a 52 year old, it took me a long time to figure out that joining the dots and going back into my past, everything's kind of played a part. And it's not only built my strengths, but it's kind of caused the yin and yang of some of the weaknesses as well. So even though I'm a long way in my road to recovery, I've had lots of ups and downs. So in terms of history, I might as well go back to, you know, year dot. So I was born in Glasgow in 1971. Uh, I had my first life-saving operation at two weeks old. Wow. And obviously at that age, you haven't got a context of trauma or, you know, the, the relevance of it. So following on from that, at 18 months of age, I nearly drowned and my older brother pulled me out of a dock because for some stupid reason, as a toddler with welly boots, I jumped off. Um, <laughs> so again, it's like, you know, where was my life going from that point? Um, so yeah, and then again, it's just that thing of, I was always the youngest in school. And as you can see, I wear glasses and I've worn glasses. I'm 52, but I've worn glasses for 51 years. Right. So as you probably know, back in our kind of generation of the 70s, if you wore mm -hmm. glasses and you had a dodgy eye, you had to wear patches over your eyes. Yeah. But straight away, you're the victim in the school setting. So not only mm -hmm. was I the runt in the school, but I was also the oddest one. But my saving grace was my sport ability. Mm -hmm. um so again i remember early memories of going to the cub scouts and and passing coming top in the sports day proceedings in my first attempt and getting upset that they wouldn't allow me to do it the following year because i would already got me badge and there was no point in me doing it um so i was just a sport billy and in, in terms of history points my mum, who's now 80, she's the same size and same weight as she was at 17. Mm. But her generation wasn't really sports oriented. But in her older years, she went on to do running and she was teaching high level um, Taibo classes into her 60s and being super fit. My dad, rest his soul, passed away at 77, still doing triathlons for fun without any training and playing 90 minutes of football against university kids. And he was uh, a mathematician by day, a kind mm -hmm. of world-renowned mathematician, but he was actually an Olympic-level footballer back in 1968. Incredible. So for me, I come from that kind of stock. Um, 
but through my childhood i did every sport so it was kind of swimming it was rugby it was football so by the age of 15 i was already county level in five sports so i had football rugby athletics cricket and swimming mm-hmm. and i was kind of you know just doing them because i enjoyed them so at 15 i got scouted by glasgow rangers which is quite a big deal up there yeah uh, i don't sound glaswegian anymore there's, there's still a little bit of, bit of it in there but the big trauma that happened at 15 i survived an attempted murder wow so i ended up with a traumatic brain injury because i got attacked with an axe a crowbar and a car uh and the listeners might not be able to see but i've got a scar in the back of my head where basically the axe hits and if i had this haircut that or lack of hair that i've got now <laughs> I, I wouldn't be alive i had a chris waddle curly perm at 15 yeah cushioned the blow but they wouldn't allow me to sleep <laughs> for 48 hours because they said if i go in a coma i'm not going to come out of it so that kind of was a big deal but not in the moment because again at 15 the world is going on and you're dependent on adults mm. so i just remember getting a police escort to and from school uh going to the id parade and in the old days the id parades you know when you see on tv they've got the screen yeah. goes floor to bottom for mm. some reason in glasgow there's an eight inch gap below the glass so whoever I was looking at and moving around was following me with their eyes. So it just kind of put the fear of God in me. So basically I'd had the, the childhood trauma some early years, but at 15, I was told that I'm not going to live to see 16 unless I move countries and kind of start over again. Wow. So, yeah. Was that mistaken identity or yeah, you know, what happened there? It was just a stupid situation uh, in the sense of, me and my friends were at our high school and my friend was playing the bab bag i can't get me teeth in bagpipes in a concert yeah we decided to walk home and the street that we walked back on was by a primary school and apparently there was meant to be a gang fight on and one of the gangs didn't turn up oh so basically what happened was they let the girls go but instead of letting us go because we were 15 and they were 18 to 21 ish age they were like well there's no point in us going home without at least doing something. So we just got well and truly mullered. And when I got hit, basically the guy that hit me with the axe, he hit my friend first with the flat of it. So it just sounded like a punch. Mm. So I was kind of getting ready to turn around and maybe like try and break some distance because I was a bit of a scrapper when I was a kid. Mm. And someone just said duck axe and it just caught me in the head. And as I tried to get away, the next one came out with a crowbar and then the car came around the corner and tried to run us over. So we kind of legged it to a friend's house that was 200 yards away. Um, the guy that was playing the bagpipes, his dad was a cop, but the first police on the scene blamed us. Like, you know, what did you do? It's like, we're 15, they're 18, 21. You know the gang, whatever um so they found the axe and they basically verified that it was a real attack because i'm sat there with a fractured skull and blood coming out of my head mm. um and it was just that it was glasgow growing up was a rough kind of tough place and we just happened to be in the wrong street at the wrong time and you know bob's your uncle your life changes in a moment mm. madness i yeah. mean i had a similar one uh, when i was 16 in portsmouth where i grew up where a guy, a girl who lived on my road was um, dating this guy. And we were in the car park at the leisure center and the guy pulled a knife on us. 
And um, he said, you've been telling my girlfriend X, Y, Z. And we said, no, 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 what are you going on about? And he's, he's put it right in my face. And I've grabbed it. We've had a tussle. And he's ended up getting stabbed by his own blade. Now, I, I threw that on the roof. And then my, my mates who were with me uh, punched him a couple of times. And he ran off into the leisure centre. And um, the police came round and questioned us. And the only reason that we never got charged with anything there is because it was winter and I was wearing gloves. And when they found the knife on the roof, um, they uh, they only had his prints on. Yeah. And so yeah. it, it's amazing, isn't it? How these incidents can come around and the fortuitousness mm. of that situation was I was wearing gloves and, you know, that guy uh, who pulled the knife was then, um, but his brother and all his mates who were older were, were seeking us for a, 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 a fair while. Uh, yeah. We were just lucky that um, the guy I was with, his brother used to be a football hooligan. So his, his brothers sort of spoke to them and said, look, all's fair in love and war. This, let's call this an end. And, and the thing sort of got sorted out. But it's just, you know, that's that fickle finger of fate, isn't it? You know, you're walking past at that time and then they just think, oh, you know, we're spoiling for a fight. Let's just attack these guys. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. there was no relevance in terms of we weren't a threat we weren't a danger we were young kids you know even though you think 15's teenagers and you got a bit of where you're a young kid compared to an 18 yeah. 20 on ago yeah yeah so basically we went through the process of identifying them they pled guilty so what was an attempted murder charge got dropped down to gbh mm -hmm. with good behavior and good grace they would have got three years being out in 18 months getting death threats from their friends on the streets and it was time to move Mm -hmm. So, again, being the young kid in school and having sport, this will tie into what happened kind of, you know, uh, just a couple of years later. Yeah. So I was very shy, very fearful of the world, very timid, going to a school where I got picked on for being Scottish, uh, mm -hmm. again, being the youngest in the year because I'd started education at four. I'd spent a couple of years in California as a kid. And again, being an 11-year-old kid in California with 14-year-olds, I got bullied so the i'm a juxtaposition in the yin and yang i'm kind of the easy victim kid but my sport was exceptional mm. so between you know 15 and 17 i was clark kent and then superman so in real life i was this shy timid small skinny scraggy teenager who was scared of his own shadow but put me on a football field or a rugby field and I had freedom. I could breathe. I could exhale. I could just survive the world and have enough positivity to handle the shit side of life that was. Mm. So at 17, um, I was basically, you know, I was, I was told at kind of 16, you've got to choose two sports. We think you're good enough to go international level at three sports. Uh, and again, the, the bad thing about our generation is we don't have proof. So I say these things and I can get you a Great Britain, you know, Olympic head coach who can verify it, but mm. I don't got the video. So I had Sandy Carmichael, again, going to rugby. He was a, a legend of the Scottish game. I went to the Scottish School of Excellence two years in a row. I was made the captain. I was running for the county. I had Graham Knight, Olympic coach, and John Crotty, Olympic coaches basically saying you know you're doing your a level pe let's see how fast you are so mm. i ran i think 11 flat the first time i was in trainers i long jumped seven meters and qualified for the uk junior championships in the pe session 
Um, so they're like, oh, well, you're easily going to get to Commonwealth level if you represent mm -hmm. Scotland. And then mm -hmm. football, I was, uh, it, again, it's interesting. The football bit is very interesting because when I moved to England, my dad wrote a letter to Stoke to say, we're coming down, can he get a trial? And heard nothing. Mm -hmm. So I went to join the best local amateur team, which was a team called Newcastle Town. Right. They had this rule where unless you were there a year, you couldn't start. Even though the manager's like, well, you're the best player we've got. And five of us went on to be pro standard. Mm. Uh, they, they wouldn't start me. So I gave up football for uh, about six months. And what happened was they phoned me one day and said, oh, we've got a tournament up at Keele University. Um, mm. of a player, do you want to come and play? And I was like, okay. Because one of the teams, one of my old Glasgow opponents, so I turned up and then within a couple of weeks, I was, you know, representing the county. I was made captain of the county schools. I got scouted by two pro teams. I was, you know, described as the best left-footed defender they'd seen. You know, I was running 100 metres in like 10.8, 10.7, getting mm -hmm. down to 10.6 with the hand timing. Um, so I was a left fullback who was deemed kind of just freakishly exceptional. Mm -hmm. You know, I slam dunk a basketball and I'm only five foot ten. So, you know, in an arrogant way, the people that knew me would say he could pass like Glenn Hoddle, he could tackle like Stuart Pierce, and he was more athletic than Ronaldo. Mm. I can't show you that. Yeah. But people that know me, you know, so someone, I remember someone asked Graham Knight, they said, was Dave actually that good? And Graham Knight, who was the Olympic coach, was also asked to play for Spurs, and he turned them down. And he went, Dave is a phenomenal athlete, but an even better footballer. He was the real deal. You know, he could have got to Olympic level probably. In the... So when I went to Stoke, I only had to train one day a week. And they were mm -hmm. negotiating me signing, you know, my contract. And then what happened was at 17, someone that was supposed to be a good runner and was with another club in an under-21 game, didn't like this 17-year-old who could give him 10 yards and just steamed by him. And he just took my knee out. So uh, he not only, you know, it, he ruptured my medial ligament, my lateral ligament, my ACL ligament, and the actual knee capsule. So in 1988, that was it. Mm. I had to go through, again, the naivety of surgery and the naivety of medical science back then. They put me in plaster uh, three times to see if it would naturally heal. So I lost about eight months of going in plaster and coming out and it collapsing, going in plaster, coming out collapsing. Eventually they operated. It was eight hours of surgery, 18 months of rehab to straighten, you know, to allow me to walk properly. Because in no days they put you in a knee brace. Mm -hmm. They straightened it out a few degrees each kind of month. So you didn't get to straight for a while. So I've had arthritis since I was 17. And the weird thing in the context of this podcast is, the PTSD element of that football injury is far greater than the element of the surviving the murder. Right. That's what baffles people. Yeah. Because it's the context, the identity mm. of me as a sportsman mm. was my safety. It was my mental health. It was my mm. resilience. And even the fact I couldn't run around the track. So because the way we run around the track is that way around, as mm. in anti-clockwise, is it? Yeah, anti-clockwise. Because it was my left leg that was knackered, running bends was throwing me out. So I had to stop. And the surgeon said, you've just got to stick to straight line activity for the rest mm. of your life. So I've been arthritic for 35 years. And basically that knee injury, because they took out 
a shock absorption in my leg as in your IT band. Everything since then has compounded it. So I've got a spine fracture, which plays into a hip injury. So the physical element of my mental health is far greater than the trauma element of the axe blow. Mm. Because it's it's what gave me security, it's what gave me peace, and it was my Superman moment. Mm. And it sounds big-headed, but I know I was going to be one of the best sports people the country produced. Mm. And it wasn't hearsay, and it wasn't kind of naivety. It was backed up by expert opinion. So mm. when I joined Stoke and was about to sign on, I was getting all this praise as being the best defender they'd seen, the best left-footed player. They'd only just sold Lee Dixon and Steve Bolt to Arsenal. Mm. So I was being compared as being bigger and better and, you know, uh, much you know more talented than guys that went on to represent England. So I yeah. know timeline. It was, you know, it was the truth. But as I sit here as a bald 52-year-old, you have no relevance to, you know, the world of football as we know it. So mm. coming back to the mental health side, that's why I can't get into mental health and football because yeah. I don't have a PFA, you know, <clears throat> license or, you know... I'm a nobody, even though I've got mental health experience and from a work mm. side, and I've been at the elite level in the sports side, the doors ain't opening for me. Yeah, And that's why sometimes when you see my posts, I challenge mm. things because I'm not doing it from a place of resentment, but I'm doing it from a place of knowledge and insight that sometimes they haven't yet got. Or, mm. you know, it's, it's very... It's tough not to sound big-headed, but everyone that knows me says he's very humble and only says what he says when he knows what he knows. Mm. That I speak truth and most of the time I'll sit in silence. But the way football is patting itself on the back at the moment to do with this mental health thing, they should have been where they are 20 years ago. Yeah, They're mm. so far behind in what they're doing. And, you know, in this thing about identity, like one of my suggestions was you shouldn't have youngsters playing in the, the, the strip of a football club from 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, because by the time they're 16, they get released. Mm -hmm. Off of their identity is in a blue strip or a red strip. Yeah, yeah. And that's a huge chunk of a childhood. Mm. So, so again, that ties in with the injury part. So from there, 17, I was told to go off to uni. I went to do a sports science degree, turned up on crutches. Yeah. <laughs> Very entertaining. Having to come home every week to get physio um and that's when my anxiety kind of heightened itself mm -hmm. so i ended up djing through university um because my friends said well you can't handle being out and about with people but if we are in a room and you're kind of controlling the environment you can handle that mm. so i could handle standing in a room and playing music but when my set finished i couldn't do the social bit right so for many years my anxiety was never treated i didn't get counseling for the attempted murder mm -hmm. i didn't get anyone kind of um checking in how i got on with the injury there was mm -hmm. no follow-up you're just discarded and well you've survived so get on with it um you've learned to walk again so just move forward mm -hmm. and it's not that easy because if your dreams have been taken from you or your identity has been taken from you or your self-esteem has been taken from you or your sense of safety in the world's taken from you, you mm -hmm. fall down a huge hole. Yeah. So I had my first breakdown probably one year after I finished at uni, and I was written off as someone that wouldn't be able to function. It was that bad. Lost the ability to walk. I was scared of sleeping because I thought if I fall asleep, I'm going to die in my sleep. I was scared of eating because if I ate, I thought I was going to choke to death. 
I couldn't pick up a phone to talk to anyone. I couldn't leave the house. I was just, you know, having paranoia. Uh, thankfully, as my mum says, the only thing that kept me alive is I was a stubborn Scot. <laughs> so, I, so I basically went to jump out a window once, and that was my suicide attempt. Yeah. And basically my mum was there, and she kind of just manhandled me and did enough to stop me doing it. Um, but for 30 years, I've lived with suicidal ideation. It's mm -hmm. always there. So progressing from that, basically I had the breakdowns, went into working fitness for years and years. And then 15 years ago, more or less, um, after having my knee redone and trying to get out of fitness and doing a mature job of working in banking and realizing it wasn't for me, mm. I had another breakdown and basically went to volunteer at a mental health charity in, nine, in 2009. And I used to turn up to their mutual support groups and be a participant. And as I got into the groups, one of the members of staff said, you're kind of quite good at this. You know, there's something about you. Like, do you fancy doing some work for us? Hmm. So from being a victim and being someone who was really suffering and struggling, they kind of gave me the nudge that there was some strength in my mental health journey. Mm -hmm. So they offered me a role, and from there I went on to be the lead trainer for that charity. I went on to be the lead trainer for CAMS, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, Tier 1. Um, and I was, you know, basically flying and brought in. And in the space of three years from really struggling, being housebound with anxiety, I got well enough that in 2012 I moved to California. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, I continued mental health work. And again, going back and joining dots, um, my suicidal ideation was so significant that my best friend made me a godfather to his daughter 22 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years later to my godson, who's the professional footballer now. Um, and it was basically, Dave, hold Sophie, you're going to stay alive. Mm. So that was 22 years ago. So in that time scale, everyone's going when you're ready you'll be a great dad it'll be a wonderful experience and you'll be so good at it well in 2013 we were expecting and then i got called into a room my ex-wife and we were told that our child had a trisomy 18 which is a genetic disorder and we had to choose how and when she died right Blimey. so bearing in mind the thing that kept me alive and kept me kind of resilient to suicidal ideation was the thought of being a dad mm. The kick in the bollocks and the PTSD of being told that you can hold her for two minutes and watch her die, or you can terminate and basically kind of try and minimize the trauma. Mm. Well, Hobson's choice. My wife and me, because of my PTSD and some of her mental health, decided to go for the termination route because we didn't think we could face holding her. And then basically that happened, and my life has kind of been put backwards since then so where i was in 2012 ready to conquer the world and you know when they talk about striving and thriving and all that mm -hmm. i was thriving in 2012 and although i could never get up to a nine and a half out of ten i was at an eight and a half and the world was wonderful and i'd conquered it and i'd rewritten the rules of recovery by going from housebound to moving abroad and and starting again and I just capitulated. I looked after my wife for you know a year or so, make sure she was okay. 
And then when it was my turn, I just imploded and it led to the divorce and I came back to Britain. Three months after I got back to Britain, my dad passed with no cause of death after mm. two autopsies. So I had all these kind of intermissions of trauma and on top of the sports thing, losing the child and then being told by a cancer, I can't be a dad again. That's one whammy too much. So mm. I'm now a survivor who lives with mental health, knowing that I probably can't thrive because that's what I really wanted. So all my dreams have been taken away at one stage or another. Mm. So my resilience kind of got tested. And if you ask me a percentage of my head that doesn't want to be here, there's 30% at least that every day is going, what's the point of me living? What's the point of me being around? Mm. I've always helped others. I've always used my story and experience to help others. Um, and I must admit, it's getting harder. It's, you know, I've done 15 years of mental health. And I think because I have to face up to more challenges myself now, I find it harder when I come across people who have, shall we say, a bit of apathy or a bit of heightened um, misinterpretation of how bad the mental health is. So, for example, um, I worked with someone that had really bad anxiety and they couldn't get to the doctor's. And they couldn't leave the house. And if I went to see them, I couldn't get them to do anything. But every two months, they got on a plane on their own and went to Spain. Hmm. I worked with someone that was uh, suicidal, but he was only ever suicidal when people at the uh, benefits office threatened to take a bit more money off him. And I used to take him to the front of the queue at the doctors because obviously you've got due diligence to do. Hmm. Up there, And he sits there with the doctor and says, um, how long is this going to be? I'm meeting my friend at McDonald's. You know, I've, I've got things to do and places to be. And that bit of mental health irritates me. And I've noticed that, again, it probably sounds a bit wrong, but the margins of mental health from crisis to normality have been... Mm. So what someone has generally is a bad day. It's usually a life experience. It's a, it's a bit of a blip outside the normal emotional balance. Mm -hmm. people in crisis there's a, a whole different ball game you know yeah. people that are walking around and having suicidal ideation or living with severe anxiety is different from someone that's just kind of um done badly in one exam or yeah so mm -hmm. we're moving that way where mental health is becoming such a big thing but we're changing it to what, minimize it and kind of just standardize it or pasteurize it and that's the the bit i find challenging is that we need to be so aware of mental health but you know when footballers talk about having a tough time mm. if you tick box of the good stuff they've got so they're in the fresh air tick they're socializing tick they've got free access and ready access to healthcare. tick yeah. they get their meals and food paid for tick they only do half a day's training, tick. But yet there's this explosion of crisis amongst them. And it's like, in my world, when I was working with the street homeless, I was supporting a woman that had to choose every day how often she got raped. Mm. I was supporting the guy that had to perform homosexual sex acts because where he stayed, the gang that rang that, that part of the town, if he didn't do it, they were going to kill him. Mm. So my introduction and awareness of mental health and things in life going shit 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 far exceeds even my shit 
Mm. So when I hear people that have got it quite good, and again, you know, someone that took two years to solve a panic attack, it's like I've taken someone that was housebound, heavily medicated, non-functional, and I've got them in two months back to college, living in support accommodation and reduced medication. So for every good person in mental health, mm. there's someone that's kind of playing the game and, and football's opened itself up to a bit of manipulation of people that see it as a cash cow. Mm-hmm. And it's the same as people that it used to be the bad back syndrome. Mental health is kind of now the bad back of today. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm strong-minded in my opinions, and sometimes I should keep them a little more subdued. But you get the flavor that my journey has given me the credibility to challenge and address and suggest things, not from a position of naivety, but from a position of reality, a position of yeah. understanding. And the bit that bugs me the most is because I'm lived experience, even though I've taught psychiatrists and psychologists and I've worked as a therapist in California because I had to go through a six month interview process to prove I knew my stuff. Here, I earn not what I'm worth because Mm. I've lived experience. And basically, if you don't have a certificate that says you're a psychologist or you haven't got a counseling, you know, qualification, you're not seen as being as capable and to me that's a load of twaddle you know i've come across brilliant psychotherapists brilliant psychologists brilliant psychiatrists brilliant counselors but for every one of those i've come across some shit ones who've done more harm than, than good and it's this that's why i'm passionate about mental health because every person is a mental health person so if you mm. like 100 people at a bus stop and you have 10 mental health specialists within that 100 people, you could bring 20 people having issues and they won't all pick those 20 or 10 psychologists, mental health workers. They might pick the barber. They might pick the Mm. pub worker. They might pick the postman. Connection is 70% of the potential for recovery. 20% is skill set and 10% is intangibles. But Mm. we're living in a world where everything's based kind of at the moment on your skill sets and your qualifications. And that's the barrier I'm trying to kind of push through is that I know I'm good at what I'm doing. I'm not the best, but I'm as good as people that tell you they're the best, mm. you know? And, and again, it comes across as arrogant, but people say, yeah, we've seen the way Dave works. We've seen what he's done. He, he gets it. He has some bit of intangible magic that he can help people where others can't. Mm. And, and that's where my journey's at at the minute is that, I'm probably going to retire from mental health in the next couple of years because what I'm capable of and what I've done, again, in real terms, since 2009 to 2023, my salary has gone up by £2,000. So that, you know, 10% in 14 years. So, you know, when we hear the rail workers say that they're poorly paid on 38 grand, Mm. I'm on 22 grand. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I can see why you, you know, I don't know if I'm summing this up rightly, but you're you're coming to the end of 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 if you're tether in terms of still being involved in the space, I suppose. It going back to kind of what you were just saying before, before you wrap things up there. In terms of obviously, you mentioned obviously the the syndrome of having the the qualifications on paper that you're coming against. Can you see that changing in any way anytime soon? Or is, the, shall we say, the system's just set up 
to protect those or you know what i mean to perpetuate that kind of model it has to be protective in some ways but like we're doing now we can learn so much just by having a conversation but yeah. if you don't get invited to conversation you don't get the opportunity to show what you know yeah. so that's why california was so good is because they went hang on in it dave you haven't got a degree in psychology you haven't got a marriage and family therapist qualification but the answers you've given on your written application make us want to talk to you because we're curious yeah and basically they ran me through all the psychosis you know um you know what you say um scenarios they ran me through therapy level scenarios to see if i could answer in a way that a therapist would answer and was capable of doing so off the back of that my job was to keep the most prone to mental health hospitalizations out of mental health institutions so i had the most schizophrenic people the most paranoid people basically i was with the top category so i'd turn up and basically someone who was suffering schizophrenia they're talking to me like we are mm -hmm. but they break into another person who's saying i'm going to kill dave and i'm sat in a room with them and i'm yeah. having to deal with that level of kind of mental breakdown mental issue so we need protection you need regulation but be a bit curious if a person appears to know something or tweaks your interest mm. invite them to have the conversation mm. yeah, yeah. So i don't know if that answers your question but that's that's my no, thing that that does but it, it as as you mentioned and i think i alluded to as well it does seem like there's a mo the model was set up for protect protecting i don't know the livelihoods or protecting those that are shall we say that got their bit of paper that are in there and they've almost pulled up the the ladder to some degree to stop any other route into the into the well into the into that profession but yeah it's it's a, it's a strange one as you say like you would think in in the mental health world or, or the practitioners world of this lived experience would count for quite a lot um but obviously are you saying that just there isn't the interest in taking that on board it's just the devaluing of it in the yeah. sense that you know um if you can help someone it doesn't matter where you come from or how you do it but if you take them from a place that takes them from victimhood to living with it and being able to manage the mental health better again it's like i say mental health america studies are that 70 percent connection well connection is a human skill mm -hmm. so instead of psychologic psychologifying things humanize things and realize that the difference you make is often by being the person you are not by the knowledge you have but mm -hmm. education systems are in a place so certain things i can't go and be a brain surgeon just by randomness i can't go and be an architect by randomness but we've seen programs where someone's gone in with no training and they've fooled art critics that are professional artists they've gone in with a bit of training and they've fooled musicians that they're a mm -hmm. professional conductor and it was a show called faking it yeah, so in human interaction workplaces it's the human skill set that should trump the academic skill set and hmm. you're not bluffing and you're not bsing you're not kind of um stepping above your zone we all have the ability to be good humans we all have the ability to evoke change in someone that feeds off the energy that we give them and sees something that we say so i'm very analogy 
oriented. I create pictures and and allow people's imagination to visualize something. And that's why they they kind of appreciate my style is I don't sit down and do A, Bs and Cs. I have a fluid dynamic. So I've got understanding of CBT, solution focus, motivational interviewing. I've got the kind of the background into, you know, deep rooted mental health issues, but I'm not a high level professional in the sense of my mentors have been far better than me. So one of the guys that looked after me and um, I look up to who's a friend and actually helped me when I was in crisis first time round, and we've done the journey of patient uh, professional to basically work colleague to friend. Steve Flat, he's phenomenal. He's just a different league. Mm. He's just, and my American mentor, uh, Dr. Mark Reagans, he's the guy that Hollywood consults for any film that mentions mental health, and he's one of the godfathers of recovery. So I'm not in their stratosphere. But if you ask me about anxiety, depression, PTSD, suicidal ideation, I'm good because I've been there and I've done it. And I'm good because I've stepped outside of it and looked at what can help or what things, what nuances, what little things that someone who hasn't been there won't understand or won't get. So mm. when you talk about panic attacks, I build a connection when I say, oh, does it feel like an elephant sat in your chest? And the person will go, you're not a clinician, are you? Because they don't use that language. You know, mm. and the way they go, I can talk to you because you're normal. Mm. You're not looking at me as a case study. On, you're not looking at me through a book set of parameters. You're going, you've had that experience. Like, yeah, I've, I've been there. So I'm not a guru. I'm not Mr. Wonderful. I'm not Mr. Amazing. But in certain things... I've been better than traditional clinicians and it's been verified and kind of it's been there for all to see. So I think the best work comes when it's a teamwork. So I'm not mm. saying experienced people are better than psychiatrists. I'm saying it's a pie chart. And mm. for every individual, you find a pie chart of professionals or interactions that works for that person. And again, it's this thing of, um, you know, instead of sitting in a clinical setting, taking someone out and having a hot chocolate can be more beneficial as an intervention than actually saying, well, write down your pros and cons list for how you felt in this week, you know? Mm -hmm. So a lot of things you see now, our generation, even though we haven't got it on film or kind of in uh, something that can be seen, it's reinventing the wheel. You know, these, and again, it's like if you talk to a youngster about a mobile phone, they're so far ahead of it than our generation because they've grown up with it. Mm. Well, I've visited mental health from the age of 15, so that's 37 years ago. I've had to figure some things out for myself because there wasn't a, a, a care package in place in the 80s. It wasn't the done thing to look after mental health people. So mm. some of the things I know and are common sense to me are now being brought out as kind of forward thinking and new. And I think that's probably what Simon seen on some of my posts is that mm. i don't think i'm offensive and i don't think i'm um negative I, I i just think i kind of give people a bit of a wake and a shake that sometimes they're not as forward thinking as they think they are or they're not as um cutting edge as they think and sometimes they're not as amazing as they tell us they are mm. yeah and i don't know if Simon would agree with that in terms of his interaction with me but you know, I'm, yeah, I'm... I would agree, Dave, because I think what you're saying is, and I've found it through my own career, is 
I get good at the things that I focus on. And then I get really good at it when I'm really invested in it. And I think that needs to be taken on board. So you can do anything that you want to do, I believe. And once you get in it and you get the opportunity, then you become immersed in it and you become better. So even if people do academia, academia serves a purpose. Of course it does. And it gives you, and we talk about certification and we've talked about it a lot on these because of coach education. It gives you a time in place where you've met a standard. Whether you then go on to be proficient in that uh, field comes down to your application of knowledge, experience, your gut, your intuition, your problem solving skills, transferability of knowledge across different sectors. So if you've only just been in one field, yeah, you've probably got really good at that. But your bandwidth of knowledge might be quite limited. Where if you've got a bandwidth of varied experiences across different sectors, um, you come at it from a, a totally different perspective. And I think it gives you that deeper um, level of uh, in, 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 I'm trying to insight where you go, well, actually, I'm seeing this not just from there, but from here. And how do I then apply a solution to that? Well, I'll try this and see what happens. Yes, there has to be guardrails around it when we're in mental health. Of course, they do. But I think people trusting their gut is a vital thing because I deliver these mental health first aid courses and I enjoy them. Of course, I do. But they give you a framework. When I speak to everyday people who come on to them and they share with me their lived experiences, they never had no training before. But they've been able to support someone who's suicidal and threatening to throw themselves off a building. Yeah. Yeah. So something in them from a humanist perspective has guided them to go, this is what I'm going to try. And, you know, that that is what's given me different perspectives on it. It's go, look, there are frameworks, there are procedures. However, there is also humanism and people will bring their life experiences to things. And you know what? A lot of the time what they do is really, really valuable. And it can't be discounted because I think some people, when I do training, are fearful for doing the wrong thing because they think, ah, I'm going to make a mistake. And it's going, can you trust yourself? Can you trust your gut? And I tell you what, most of the time you'll get it to a good place. Will you be someone who'll be able to support someone long term? Maybe they're not, but they do enough in that moment to prevent that person going on to harm themselves. And then there might be other avenues that goes down because I usually find that people who come to those courses have something about them from a caring perspective that's innate and they just, um, you know, are caring people. The biggest challenge with them is managing their own self-care to make sure they don't take on too much because they want to support people and they need quite clear boundaries or understanding their self-awareness to go, when am I starting to become too affected by this? How do I protect myself to step away from that? I don't know if that's something that you've experienced within your own was, um, journey as well. I was going to say that's the irony of being in the mental health is you've got to have a good heart to give off good hearts energy. Mm. So people that don't, again, I don't know how strong language I can use, but I'll say it. People that don't give a shit and are selfish don't work in mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Because they have no interest in other people. So the yin and the yang of it is that you're like a bit of a jigsaw. You're giving pieces of yourself when you're helping others. And you're like me, Simon. I think I'd almost describe it like playing snooker. You kind of look at people's situations from different angles and different pockets. So when a snooker player is going to play a shot, the top ones kind of take time and they go from that end to that end to that end to the middle. They look, And that's what I do. So 
me and you could meet the same person, but the mm. pocket that I'm actually looking at them from and thinking of what shots I'm going to do might be different from yours. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing of that's the creativity of people that have empathy. They are naturally trying to find a solution to that problem. And that's where the energy give out comes from because you're racking your brains and you're racking your experience and trying to figure out what bit of your story or what bit of your journey relates to that shot to make it as successful as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think compassion fatigue, um, again, in America, they have to have special therapists for psychologists because the highest suicide rate is amongst mental health workers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit like GPs here. You know, they have to have their own um, therapy because alcoholism was rife, you know, in terms of the stress and strain of doing that kind of job. So, yeah, so I think that's why for me, I love what I do and I love seeing people get on and change from victims to living. And I see it as passing the baton, you know, mm-hmm. that you basically you're not bringing someone with you to your destination. You're passing the baton to allow them to follow in your footsteps. The road they take might not be the same one as you. It takes you in different journeys. And I think going back to that bit of, you know, saying, you know, you're talking about maybe finishing off. Yeah, my compassion fatigue because of what I live with, I'm more vulnerable to it. Mm. So in terms of dealing with people, I have a shorter fuse for those that are manipulating the system or aren't in as much need and taking away the time that could be spent on someone who is in crisis. You know, the cry wolf brigade. And, you know, this is one of the things you're not really supposed to say because you're not meant to. But we know it happens. There's people that seek the attention and they will tell you that they're always in crisis. And an example, I know someone that uh, was in crisis telling people that they were going to end their lives. And the fire service went around and they kicked the door in expecting to find someone in a real pickle and they sat there having a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. so it, it, it's that so i love the aspect of giving my heart and my soul and helping it fuel someone else who gives it on and gives it back to someone else it's it's that kind of continuation but i think for me i need to have a dynamo response like a bike i need to pedal in my work but i need to realize it's getting re-energized um and that's the difference between me of 2012 and now is it the energy level that goes into challenging my own self, you know, destruction of life is pointless without being a parent. You know, life is just why am I here? What's my meaning? And again, just in terms of the weirdness of life, out of all my friends, I'm the sporty one, but three of my best friends are professional football kids. So I have that Mm -hmm. yin and yang of feeling very proud of my godson as a pro footballer, very proud of my best mate from college daughter who's a pro footballer, very proud of my best friend from uni son who's a pro footballer. But whenever I watch football, call it jealous, call it resentment, call it frustration, there's daggers in my head and in my heart because even if you ask me now at 52, what do I want to be? I'd still want to be a footballer because it's the kid element that had the innocence of life. It was the freedom. So mm. my friend, it'd be torturous for you because in theory, you know, if you'd have had a kid, chances are they would have been as sporty like you. So I've got this wasted DNA and that's the bit that fuels my head that goes, why am I here? Because 
I'm a smart cookie, the son of a mathematician. It took me a while to get my brain working, but I finally figured out I'm relatively intelligent. I have all this physical DNA that is worth going somewhere, but it's never going to go anywhere. And there's a bit of me being pulled going, well, why are you wasting your time just plodding along? And the helping other people kind of distracts me from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going somewhere in my journey and my frustration and my kind of um, pain and mental kind of struggle allows me to to put it in and invest in others. I love seeing that response. But the balance of being undervalued and underappreciated and deemed not qualified and not capable is getting to me as I'm getting older because I think naturally at 35 you have more energy resilience than you do at 50. Um, mm. Just start shrinking physically. I think your kind of ability to deal with BS or things that irk you shrinks. Um, yeah. So, so yes, yeah, so I think that's kind of the, the where I'm at. Is I don't want to give up on it, but I look at my paycheck and I look at uh, people getting jobs and I look at you know things that I see on LinkedIn and I go, well, I know all that. I can do all that. But I'm never going to get a shot at it. So, yeah. you know, why give up so much good stuff? And that's the selfishness of probably years of mental health is that you shouldn't be selfish, but you do get a bit pissed off when you know you're good at something, but you're never getting valued at what you're yeah. worth. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned obviously maybe two years you want to move away from what you're doing at the moment. Have you thought about what you want to do if you move away from the mental health? Um, area that you're in it sounds really simple it's just to find more positive energy Hmm. so being in an environment where i'm not hearing people tell me they want to kill themselves daily i'm not hearing people tell me how shit life is five four days a week basically i want to be around energy that kind of makes me feel bouncy it Hmm. makes me go Ah, the sunshine, like this light, it's over yeah. there rather than the darkness out the window over there. And that's that's where I'm at. Is it might be going to work as a, a teaching assistant with eight, nine year olds who are just enjoying the novelty of yeah. life. You know, it's that thing of when you see a kid come to a swimming lesson, they walk into the gym with a parent, and the parents are walking and trudging in, and the kids, skip, yeah. skip. <laughs> yeah. I, I need a bit of that in me to manage the trudgy adult mm. that's what I'm, so i might be working with animals it's just to get away from the drone of because i can do that to myself very easily yeah. and i'm tired of hearing it myself but i know there's a reason for it so why do i want to absorb everyone else's drone of negativity so yeah, yeah. so mental health is a huge thing and part of it is the wisdom and insight to know what's best for you and as someone said i've I've served my jury duty and if it's not going to be kind of passed on or not listened to further down the line and and i start to kind of devalue myself then maybe you step away and it's a bit like the boxer why do you hang around to be punch drunk or be kind of battered and bruised more than you need to yeah exactly so when you went through your injury as that young lad where did you tap into the resilience to because i think Mm. this this starts to form some of the narrative of i've had setbacks throughout life 
you know, there is some crossover here. I've had lots of things myself and I, I'm seeing this, but I can't put a finger on where did that resilience come from to just keep turning up and keep waking up and keep wanting to do things. So I don't know if you'll be able to pinpoint it or not, but, you know, how did you dig deep at those dark times to go, I can still pull myself up? Because, um, you know, myself, I used to drink heavily when I was younger uh, and probably got myself into blackout situations. But I never turned into an alcoholic. I never turned into an addict. So I, I've never really reflected deeply on it. So why didn't I, you know, what was it that was pushing me forward? So is there things that you can pinpoint or is there you were just one step in front of the other and you just kept going for some reason? I think it's a weird one because, again, I was a control freak. My anxiety made me a control freak. I had to see what was coming behind me. I had mm -hmm. to see what was coming in front of me. So if I went to a cinema, I had to sit on the back row so I could basically observe everything. And I think that kind of control freak element, it did me no favors, but it did me favors at the same time because it didn't let me spiral into alcohol. So the sport bit, mm. um, I was always kind of had to be responsible and sensible and i was never drawn to alcohol or smoking so that never became a possible outlet because it didn't resonate in my brain as i'm feeling like i need an escape i internalized and my escape meant more to the anxiety where mm. i became scared of the world and and i think again as my mom says there's a bit of stubborn scott so when i knackered my knee and basically they said right you know your career's over the easy answer that i got from adults around me is you've got four a levels go off to university mm. and everything was kind of um the emotional breakdowns and the impact of it was all put on hold because there was incidents of goodness within so i made great friends at university but my friend says we only ever saw you at the library twice you never kind of left the house unless we were djing and you felt safe with us so I had control of everything I did. But what I learned is the more you control your world, the smaller it gets. Mm. So my resilience was probably accidentally confounded by the sheer fear of, of being scared of the world and everything around it, that I kind of did things and then bottled them up. And that's why my breakdowns were big and bold because mm. i suppressed things i kind of somehow managed to a bit like a tornado on the road there's a road where you're walking your journey and you're kind of managing normal life doing things but for me there's a tornado that runs parallel and i spend my time managing that because i can live a good life if that tornado doesn't cross over and get onto that road but every now and then in life losing the kid or whatever or just losing my best friend when he was 20 that tornado's come and just decimated me so i think i was predisposed to dramatic destruction rather than uh slow erosion hmm. i think the slow erosion led to the implosion but it went up like an atom bomb when it happens um so it's hard with the resilience i think I invested my energy into physical work still. So even if I couldn't do sport, I discovered the gym. And this might sound a bit strange because I'm only five foot 10 and 11 half stone. 
I was always kind of looking at guys who are six foot four and 18 stone and thinking, oh, they're monsters and they're big. And the level of the gym was, I realized that size doesn't affect strength. So off the back of that, I started training and I didn't know that I was getting quite strong. But again, I qualified for the British powerlifting standard without mm -hmm. knowing it because I wasn't going there to achieve weights. I just trained with a power lifter and at the end of the day, I lifted three times my own body weight off the floor and someone 10 years ago went, do you realize that's national standard? Well, I was just doing what I could do physically because I couldn't play football, rugby, basketball. And the gym gave me self-esteem. It gave me confidence. It allowed me to kind of not feel like Clark Kent because I suddenly realized, hang on a minute, I'm kind of physically capable of dealing with my fear because I'd have to be a, a bouncer. I was uh, made the head of physical training for the police. Uh, I was asked to be a, a bodyguard. So at five foot ten, you're not normally put in that category. So yin and yang, the fear part of me was compensated by the fact I was just physically very competent. So I've had to learn resilience by probably one step in front of the other mostly, but just I wasn't able to kind of um, invest in my own pain enough to allow it for me to go to drink drugs or you know that kind of vice there's something that kept me upright and mm -hmm. as my mom says it, it, there's a stubbornness in you and that does me disservice because again coming back to qualifications why don't you study and get a qualification well why don't I want to spend three years like spending 20 odd grand on a degree to learn 5% and already know the 95% I'm learning. I love learning new things and having my eyes open and my ears open, but to retrain in what I already know just to get a degree, it's like, so that's the downside of my stubborn streak, my survivor streak is, it's a bit like football, you've got your badges. Mm. I go, well, I know football and I kind of, it's a bit like the manager syndrome. Every time you go to a football game, for every clueless supporter, there's quite a few people that could do the same job as Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp. There's people that know football, mm. you know, and you don't have to be a rocket scientist. And we're kind of going down that journey where these people are gods and they, they know everything. Well, yeah. football is 11 men against 11 men. And you just have to get the ball in the net one more time in the opposition to win the game. It's a simple thing with science behind it, but it's not as weird, wonderful and mysterious as we make out. And again, it probably comes from my my dad. You know, he was a football man, and because he was an academic and mathematician, he saw what football is now. When I was like nine years old, he was telling me all the things about total football and all that stuff. He was on about the ball does more of the work. You know, things that are now being seen as, you know, really forward thinking tactics and awareness of how the game is played. It's like. He had it then, but he was a maths professor. Mm -hmm. So, again, I should probably get me badges and stuff if I want to be involved, but I'm in pain all the time. So if I collapse kicking a ball, it would just add to the frustration of that scenario. Yeah. I think um, you touched on it earlier is at the time, you know, there was no support. It was, no. Dave, get on with it yourself and work it out. So that problem-solving element to it, 
where you've had to find out your own, your own narrative around, well, how am I going to navigate this? Because I've got some fam familiar support. I've got some friend support, but I haven't got professional support. And there's almost that element like when well, there was no professionals at the time for me. So, you know, that academia bit, is it really necessary? And I think it's only for litigation and other things. Obviously, there's bits part where people say it needs to happen because you've obviously had to work out how do I navigate this to make sure that I keep myself alive? I also thrive and then go on to become the person I've got. Because I think a lot of us went through that when we were from that era of, well, I've just got to try and work this out. I've got to try and see where I go with this because if it consumes me, I think there are the people who fall by the wayside, unfortunately, you know, um, it's no secret. I've known 10 people who've died by suicide and my own father and things like that. I think sometimes those people fall by the wayside. So have they got that, that problem solving capacity, that ownership, that responsibility to go, I, I'm going to work my, my way through this. Um, so is there, sort of a need do you think for this society that you're touching on now because i get a lot of corporate people say look we're unsure we want to do the right thing for people in the workplace for around their mental health and well-being but we do think people are gaming the system and we want to do it from an accuracy point of view to go what what's our responsibilities who's gaming the system who's not gaming the system how do we put education and training on for them and it's a constant um, space that they're trying to navigate is there some thoughts there that you've got? Well, how do I equip um, organizations, corporations, uh, even individuals to really push through this um, and go, you're not as unwell as you think you are, but is it their capacity to cope, David, yeah. which is holding them back, do you think? Well, I always use this thing. It's the bee sting analogy. Mm. If I get stung by a bee, I could end up in anaphylactic shock. I'm not that person, but just for the sake. Yeah. So I could get stung by a bee and a knee and basically be at death's door. You could get stung by a bee and come out in a little bobble, a little rash. And Dave could get stung by a bee and not even notice it. Mm. We're so different in our brain chemistry and our neurological kind of capacities that that's why medication, one size doesn't fit all. So mm. I think sometimes it's just who you are how you are is there a bit of your brain that whether you know it or not is wired to be cope focused is there a bit of your brain that's wired to be catastrophizing mm. and i think curiosity has been the best teacher for me um along with evidence so in terms of the working world how do we find people playing the system because like a bad back you can't see mental mm -hmm. health it's not as if I can give you a litmus test and go, all right, lick that paper, and if it turns red, then I know you're bullshitting. Mm. <laughs> so you've got to take people at the word. And yeah. I think it's that thing of mental health is not a separate subset of living. There's mental health, which is challenging and leads people to suicide, and that's one category. And mm. then there's mental health where – your colleagues got the promotion and you go off and you have a bad day and you think that's mental health. Well, it is mental health, but it's not mental mental health. It's kind of mm. life health. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I have silly things like, um, you know, when you talk about men and women that, you know, uh, that women get time off for painful periods and they basically get paid leave. It's like, well, if we want to be truly open and honest, 
sex for men is as important as exercise and fresh air because for us it's an immediate stress buster mm-hmm. well, will we get to the stage where we get paid leave for having some you know sex relief it mm. probably won't happen but the conversations you've got to throw things and little bits of dynamite to get people talking so in the workplace yeah. i think it comes from people feeling that they can talk and express themselves and not need to go in an office to do it mm. so the version of loose women that we have as blokes that i've found is get guys sitting in a sauna and women will say guys never talk like that in real life but in that environment for some reason we talk about our mental health we talk about our marriage issues we talk about our health issues so where do you find the space at work that allows someone to feel like that and even it sounds really stupid but the lunch break we should have a guaranteed minimum of 45 minutes lunch because 30 minute lunch break isn't enough to kind of um sit down eat your food and have a conversation with someone and a conversation with someone might be the bit that takes the steam mm. pressure out of your head yeah. you're having your sandwich but you're talking about bloody hell my team lost yesterday and i drove home and i hit a pothole and i've knackered my tire and i'm not getting paid to next week but that tire is going to cost me 250 quid so the mm. normalization of a conversation that helps mental health rather than having to make it a specific right let's do a training session let's make it a top-down philosophy it's got to be a universal spherical philosophy that is a bit like you know when you put your hand on those spheres and the electricity sparks and mm-hmm. the up. that's how it's got to be incorporated in the working world is that everyone's got to feel that they can touch something talk to someone do that equivalent where they feel animated and alive to have that conversation rather than go away and go my boss doesn't understand me and there's no policy so again i have little things about if we work in mental health and we deal with someone that's suicidal we should automatically have the next day off we mm. shouldn't be expected to come in and, because the emotional toil of accumulation yeah. if you're working on a crisis line phone line you should basically work six months and then have a couple of months off so in the workplace what's the level of stress are you dealing with uh, building site stress where it's health and safety and you know we know Mm. now there's a lot of suicides in that why is it so who's exploring what is causing that Mm -hmm. so in the work it's a very tough nut to crack because everyone wants to raise awareness but the language of mental health is very important so i don't say victim i say live with and again i don't use resilience now as much as adaptable Mm. because for me resilience was what i needed when i was going through my crises and having to step back but adaptable allows me to have an open world so instead of relying on certain things that might go wrong leave myself open to any possibility that i can choose to do that might make a difference and you know i think even simple things like in a workplace have plants and and have Mm. colors and things i notice at my workplace the color code of of dress and uniform is black and gray hmm. well if i spend all day working with colleagues are wearing black and gray i'm going yeah. to start picking up on that cue to feel miserable because we know through evolution hmm. if you pay attention to the flowers you put yourself at danger so we're wired to be a threat 
So we're wired to be attentive to bad news more than we are good news. So have a color at work day or basically have a, a pets at work day, something that takes the normality out of a regular working environment and introduces something fun. Um, bring someone in that does magic tricks if you you know you, you've met all your targets and you know in america we had to have a, a day every kind of month because of the nature of the work we did because some days i'd turn up to work and i'd have armed police officers protecting me because i'm going to section someone and in america mm -hmm. as soon as you step on someone's yard you're trespassing and they have the right to shoot you so i'd have yeah. zach and say going dave if we say banana you've got to duck to your right because we're opening fire <laughs> So that, you know so that's that's stressful in itself yeah, yeah we yeah. had to go and go canoeing or we'd go to a museum we just switch off completely but the british mentality i don't think we've kind of we're happy with with the impact that mental health will have on the workplace and on man hours and because we do have people that play the system so how do you get the genuine from the disingenuous and I, I don't know the answer to that one yeah that's a tough one I suppose just picking up again, <laughs> that's incredible. But I, I'd never really thought about it like that in terms of in America. Like you say, if you're trespassing, uh, a bit different to say here in the UK, you might get a dog come at you. But yeah, there you're going to have bullets flying potentially. Um, but I suppose listening to you talk about, you know, like the working environment, um, I suppose also those suggestions you have. Have you ever thought about, I don't know, providing some sort of consultancy or advice to businesses? Because from the way you're talking about this, it makes a lot of sense <laughs> to, to someone that's spent, I don't know, the last 20 odd years working in quite stale corporate environments. <laughs> what you're saying kind of rings quite true. Like, is that ever something you've ever thought about? This is where the shy kid comes in. Mm. I can do things with like this in a partnership but my insecurity and my self-esteem will bite me in the arse. So sometimes I know the good idea, but I get scared of fulfilling it. So for me, I know that those things make sense and you can see them working, but I'd find it kind of like intimidating to put on that mindset. I'm more of a compassionate person than a business kind of a directive person. Yeah. No, so I'm I'm like the person who can come up with the ideas and likes delivering in the entertainment space of talking to people who need the help rather than talking to the person that can authorize the help being created. Yeah. Um, so again, when I talk to uh, about trying to get music into football academies in terms of it's a very underused wellness tool that you can create emotional talent intelligence via music and it's a self therapy. I spoke to a guy who uh, Simon might know, Mike Clark, and said, do you fancy doing it? And he's like, yeah, I like that. And I would need that kind of tandemness to allow me to go forward with the idea. So consultancy, you might put a penny in my head and go, well, yeah, hang on a minute. If Dave thinks that's a good idea. But I'd, I would find it challenging to have the balls to do that and, and knock on the door and go i've got this great idea um you know i think you should do this and do that and someone else will come up with it and they'll roll with it and it'll work 
Mm. I suppose I, the way I see it, you know, speaking to you now, you know, you know, you're speaking with authority on this area. You, you should have no reason why anyone should doubt you or anyone would think, well, this is, you know, I don't think this person knows what they're talking about in terms of, you know, starting that conversation. You've got the, you know, the, you've done the, you've walked the, the, the walk, you've talked the talk, you've got the experience. And I don't know, like, Simon, you've got experience of working with uh, companies and businesses, you know, mm. doing the, the courses you do. Like, you know what do you think like do you see like i i don't know it it just the way dave talked well to be honest the way you talked about everything the passion you've got and all the experiences you've had but just that last bit where you were talking about you know mm. the way you see things could be done it, it it's a no-brainer to me you know i think that's something that yeah. could add a lot of value to a lot of people's lives i can um empathize with dave's position here because mm. You need, uh, it comes across to me, Dave, is you're not that go-getter of I'm going to drive a business. So when I see a lot of people in this mental health space, they're good at marketing and they're very good at getting in front of the right people who make the decisions about things being paid. Are they most effective at being the solution to that organization? That's what I come across. So you see a lot of these people on LinkedIn and other places who are great at promoting the work that they do. And they get in the work that they do. But then what they deliver is not of the quality where I think you're on the other side of the coin. You could deliver high quality and it would be uh, bespoke and needs led for that organization. You just don't know how to then market it to the right people for them to go. Ah, this is this is the solution we've been looking for. Um, and I think that is the biggest challenge in it. It's um, getting heard in this current you know, market. Because there is so much noise out there, especially in the mental health and well-being uh, space at the moment. How do I stand up from the rest? How do I get those connections? And I think that is the ongoing challenge for people similar to yourself who have that wealth of knowledge to then go, right, how do I reach out? Um, and as you've said, you've tried to connect through sport and the other avenues where your strength is. And I find it myself. I'm not a marketeer. So... When people offer me work, it's usually once they've seen me work, similar to what you said, they go, Simon would deliver good quality for you. Get him in. Um, yeah. But it's trying to get in front of those corporate clients because this is why I've recently done a mediation course. And Dave will know about it because I crashed at his house for a few days while I was doing it. You meet people on those courses who have those other skills and it's connecting with them and getting in front of those corporations because these mediators uh, which blew my mind. Some of them are getting five to twelve hundred pound a day. So five hundred to twelve hundred pound a day to go in there and support people to resolve conflict. And it could be basics of miscommunication. I haven't been heard. I haven't been validated. I'm not being supported. And once you get them to sit there and work through it, the next minute the relationship might not be the best in the world, but they can work professionally together. They can move forward and make things happen. And you think these people are getting that sort of money. Wow. Wow, that is good money for doing that type of role. And it's not, you know, really challenging conflict that you're dealing with. It's mm. not like I've got to do anything beyond uh, around trauma. It, it is just trying to equip people with the skill set to go, can you actively alert, listen, understand what someone is, is saying to you, and then provide or guide 
through them, facilitate this conversation to resolve the conflict. So you don't even have to come up with solutions, but it's creating that space for those conversations to take place. And, and I think, you know, you, you've definitely got the skill set to, to work in, in that area. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever thought about mediation as a, a tool in a corporate setting, because obviously that's where they pay the money. If you're doing it in a family, you need more skills. Uh, you need to be a lawyer, that type of background or commercial. You need to have those. But for work based uh, mediation, you just need to go on one of these courses, which I did, and then get on the ground and get the hours and log that sort of thing. Well, I think you've definitely got the skill set. Um, and I don't know, you know, what are the, where are your thoughts taking you with next steps once you step away from this? You said you want to be in a positive energy sort of place. Yeah. And yeah. I think this is this is one of those spaces where you can create that positive energy. But it, it, it's still there is that still bit of negativity from the people that are coming into the room. But if you provide that solution with them, that co-creation, that's for me what's really intrigued me about is going, that's what I want to be part of. Um, so I don't know. Well, the, the weird bit, just going back to the, the the kind of consulting bit, I think anyone who has mental health has an insecurity and wants to be so genuine that they, they inflict self-doubt on themselves. So for me, mm. everything that I said to you just about ideas is to me common sense. There's, yeah. a bit of me, there's a bit of me goes, so how do you monetize common sense? But your response has gone, well, it's not common sense to the masses. Yeah. But in my head, I'm going, it's just so bloody logical to do it. There's no, mm. you know, so I'd feel guilty going and saying, well, I'm going to tell you what's common sense because you always feel it's got to be earth shattering or it's got to be important or it's got to be significant. And Dave's reaction was, well, actually, I've heard something there that's kind of caught me attention. Yeah, I'd be standing in front of a businessman like Dave going, I can't really be asking for money for this because it seems obvious <laughs> to kind yeah. of do those yeah. things. Whereas a bullshitter salesperson, person who hasn't had mental health. What are you saying about me, Dave? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of like... <laughs> I'm joking, I'm Yeah, I mean, someone that doesn't kind of... Um, is more business savvy will yeah. sell whatever they have to do in any means necessary. Whereas I'd go away and feel guilty, which would causing yeah. mental health fibrillation in me somewhere mm. so mm. as far as like you know i thought that i'd be kind of getting into the wellness space within sport you know like mm. just being the the soft care person uh so at the minute i'm doing peer support work and my thoughts was i'd be dealing with people who are like me that have challenges but they're swans rather than warthogs and what i mean by that is that you can't tell on the outside that I have challenges, uh, even though they're there daily and I have to manage them. But if I'm a warthog, I'm disheveled, I'm wearing dark clothes, my hair's all over the place, I'm looking at the floor, I'm low slung. You can see victims and you can see people who are embracing recovery. So mm. I think my space, if I ever stayed in mental health, and again, if opportunities came up, the well-being space within young people's sports of just being someone that can listen and talk and and go for a walk and talk and not go into the deep stuff but just go you know what you're not actually doing as bad as you think or you know what you're having a shit day let's talk about it i can make you feel better mm. i can make this feel like less significant i can take you from a five out of ten to a seven in half an hour 
I can take you from a seven to an eight and a half in, in you know, one session. That's the bit I like is seeing that penny drop, the light bulb, and someone feeling a little bit vulnerable. So I always ask people, are you a five looking up or a five looking down? And that means if you're optimistic or pessimistic, because mm. my balance point is at five. And sometimes I'm looking down and I'm going, right, I need to get back. I want to be with people no worse than a five because it allows me to be the best version of me, which allows me to be the best version for them. So that's the thing about wellness, you know, like welfare and well-being. I was asked to do welfare for an athletics club in Leamington, but that was unpaid. That was volunteering. Well, mm. again, I think I've illustrated that I've got enough knowledge, insight that I'm worth some money. I'm not greedy, but I feel I'm worth more than I'm getting. So mm. where do I find that space? And this will sound yeah. really bad, but I'm now aware that I'm getting to the age, and this might come controversial, but I think you'll get it, that I'm getting too male, too white, and too middle-aged for certain positions. Mm -hmm. There's like a template of being 35. There's kind of, uh, again, this idea that compassion always comes from females. Yeah. That I work in an office where the ratio is probably like eight to two. So a lot of the welfare jobs you see are going to women. And it's like, well, women are great, but men and women are different, mm. you know, not just physically, but emotionally. So it's not degenerated, whatever, I can't say it. It's not degenerated. That's it. Scottish yeah. words, can't get it. <laughs> so women can be brilliant in positions, but sometimes they won't get what a young lad's thinking. They won't yeah. get where a young lad's at. You know, how would you have a, a, a talk about, you know, um, intimate things with a, a mature woman if that's part of the thing that's causing you issues or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so we live in this world where we've always got to be careful of what we say now and we've got to kind of figure out how to be gentle. But I definitely feel that I'm or that's kind of um, in physical presence, but I'm ahead of the game in knowledge and insight and skill set. So I've got a lot to offer. But the barrier is the fact I'm a middle-aged bloke. And the fact is that, you know, I can't prove that I was good at sports. So sporting session, footballers especially, they're not going to let me in because I don't have a magic ticket. I don't have the free pass of being a legitimate ex-pro. I've just mm. got the uh, the words of people that knew me that say I was better than Andy Robertson. I was basically, you know, something special. It counts for nothing in this day and age. So... Yeah, I think wellness would be nice, but it's, again, you know, um, I like kind of creative stuff. So maybe I might go off and do a creative design course, but you've planted the seed in my head, consultancy. You mm. know, that seems such easy money. You mm. know, people go in and they, they just get paid silly amounts of money for just you know, a bit of feng, feng shui or whatever. I, I, I think though, like I, I, I do, I do agree with something what you're saying there, but, but also I think the way you need to look at this and it kind of goes back, to, I think we kind of touched upon it a little bit in that there's a lot of businesses out there and not all of them, I'll be honest with you, but there's some, uh, there's quite a sizable number that realize that if they look after their staff and their employees um provide them with the help and support at the end of the day and this might sound quite cynical they're going to make more money and mm. it it comes down to it in that way it's 
in some respects is bad because it's not a case of them, you know, treating you just because it's a nice thing to do. It it all comes down to that bottom line. I, the examples I I've seen firsthand are places like you look at Google, you look at uh, Goldman Sachs, you know, <laughs> systematic, yeah. yeah. But what those sort of companies do is they, you know, they have um, highly trained chefs that cook everyone lunch, dinner, if they want to stay late, uh, breakfast. You know, they have on-site stuff, so they never need to leave the buildings. You know, it seems a bit pointless now, but they always say about dry cleaning and stuff like that. But I don't know who wear, not many people wear suits now. So, But what I mean is they throw in all of this kind of, stuff which on the surface you think oh that's really nice ultimately it's to keep you in the building longer so you work longer hours but also the other argument is that it keeps their staff in a uh, better shape or in a better place so that they can make them more money and it, mm. it, 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 it's it's negative i suppose there is a negative to that a, a very big negative to that but what i mean is that there is those companies out there that see the value of looking after their their the well-being like if you think about it like it's the same no different from like big companies that offer things like health insurance you know if they if if their staff get ill they can then use that private health care to get health cover quickly and easy technically so they'll be back in work quicker the same needs to kind of happen on the mental health side of things. Companies, you know, want to make sure their staff are, uh, are able to work more. It, it fits into that same model. It might sound quite cynical on my part, but I do think um, I do think it's um, you know it, it, it's something that, that we that, that we can do. Like Simon, um, I don't know. You must see this um, in terms of. Um, like what you find when you, in the the corporates you work for do you think there's a growing appetite you know it, it sounds like bundling everything into one you know <laughs> one thing but is there a growing interest in help making sure the workforce is yeah I, I, from think a mental perspective? I think there definitely mm. is linked to the points that you've made uh, around productivity profitability reducing yeah. churn and staff retention, because if you have good staff, you don't want to lose them. So this is yeah. why they're investing more time and effort in effective line manager support to make sure they um, know how to look after the people in their care. Uh, so they're not actually hindering their mental health and well-being. Yeah. They're offering something that's helpful. Um, additionally, I think, did we touch on it with Naomi recently, where yeah. those people transitioning out of careers, so yeah. if you're getting to 55, and I think this is a, an area that Dave could consider uh, as, from a consultancy perspective, is you've got these guys who work in finance, insurance, these big industries. They then get to the top of their game and then they transition out early because the business say, we want you to move on. We need yeah. younger blood coming through. And they get at 55. They, they've got a great um, you know, uh, pension package, but they just don't know what to do. They don't know how to transition. Yeah. You will also have that with elite sports people. How do I transition from being that identity, that person? So we were talking to a great um, doctor, clinician, Dr. Naomi Murphy on the podcast uh, recently. And she's doing a lot of work in this area from her you know, clinical background. She used to work in prisons and trauma-informed work. But now she's trying to adjust into this other world. And she works with elite athletes to help them navigate 
you know, all the things that they face as a performer, but then transitioning out to second career life choices. And I think with your knowledge and experience, especially your age, you know, you're saying I'm a white middle-aged man, 52, there's lots of guys who are going to transition out and they haven't started to think about, well, what next for me? Yeah. And there's some of them, they drop up a cliff. They, you know, heart attacks in them are supposed to be through the roof because they haven't considered it. Their mental health and well-being also starts to impact because they go, well, all of a sudden, I don't know what, what was my purpose. What's my meaning? Yeah. What am I supposed to do now? I've generated all this wealth, but, you know, do I just want to play golf every day or do that? So they let, lack a bit of direction. And I think for someone with uh, the, the skill set that you've got, it could be something that you consider because – no, Naomi does this great stuff. And she introduced this day, did she, to these Roshi Wave glasses, which yeah, she said they come from America. So you may have heard of them, but you put them on and they can get you into a flow state and it stimulates Lights. certain parts of the mind. Um, and we, we want to we wanna try them out because apparently you can put them on for 20, 30 minutes and it just gets you to a different state of mind, which, mm. you know, helps you then get different perspective on situations so we're going to keep touching in with naomi around them but just as a thought there then you know when you're thinking about future steps and what might look like on the horizon for you in a year to two years time i'd also throw player care in there within professional uh, football organizations but they still pay rubbish unless you're a top club yeah. but thoughts wise around how do i just adapt my skill set because i think to get out of the humdrum negative side it's more how can i be almost like a life coach in a way yeah. Yeah. Um, and trying to help people see new directions to their life is that anything you've ever considered or would consider in the future yeah that's definitely something i thought of, like the life coaching thing in terms of just uh again it, it's utilizing your experience and shaping others formulation of how their world looks to them yeah so yeah so that's definitely been something that's in my mind and Again, I think it's um, it's taken me to do this current job to realize that I've got a finite level of crisis intervention. Mm. And that's that's where. So the future is being in a space where, like you say, it's it's helping people, supporting people or step away completely. But that soft intervention where you're just being a bit like a hot water bottle rather than a sledgehammer. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you're there to soothe and be soporific and you're there to enlighten and you're there to make people look at that pool table from different angles rather than straight ahead and yeah. and change the way they want to see the shots going. Mm. Um, and I think that's it. It's like, you know, the other thing people say is I'm very good at how I write. And, I, you know, journalism or, you know, the amount of times I've been asked to write a book or I've been approached to do TED Talks. But, again, it's that kind of insecurity so this is where the years of not having counseling and intervention i didn't get any help till i was in my 30s mm. so i went a good kind of 20 years having to be left alone and isolated and there's remnants of damage that have a knock-on effect in real life so i can talk to you guys confidently and i can you know and i'm trying to you know show this fact that even if some of my words sometimes come out as he thinks he knows it I'm human and humble, but I've developed confidence in my awareness that I've got something positive to say, but sometimes I'll still get shy and sometimes I'll still get insecure and sometimes I'll still feel very vulnerable. Um, and that's why I like 
you know, I, I like being the person in the room that catches people's attention by listening, but then saying something and people go, ah, that's different. Yeah. So I'm not a front of the house statesman. I'm not a, an actor and a, a, a musician performer. I'm better as kind of like the little ninja that comes along and by being subtle and, and actually presenting something with stealth creates a change in someone's mind. Um, so if I talk to people like you who are impressive, I'm more intimidated and more on my guard than if I talk to someone like me who's vulnerable because I automatically feel that I can be comfortable and less defensive. Mm -hmm. So so that's part of my journey is that there's little crevices. So what appears to be a well-built, well-structured individual who's got all these strengths and qualities, for every one of those, if you press the wrong kind of um, patch of ground, it can crumble a bit. Mm, mm. That's, that's a frustration for me is that I've uh, been too damaged to be uh, immune to uh, rejection or immune to uh, feeling let down. And that, again, ties in with why I think I've got a finite um, time because I get frustrated that I want to be better and bigger and more prominent. Uh, and I know I've got the capacity capability to do it. But it needs to be at the right equinox. The stars would have to align for me to feel yeah. confident, feel ebullient, feel alive. Because uh, if you catch me on the wrong day, I'll be like, oh, I'm grey. <laughs> you can't sell yourself in any capacity if you have, uh, what's it, uh, self-defamation self in a way? I don't know. Mm, yeah. I, I suppose one thing that is worth saying, like we've had other guests that have appeared on the podcast and after they've appeared, people have contacted them either to kind of find out more of what they discussed, but also to just suggest kind of opportunities or, or things like that. I suppose, are you open to, you know, we, we, we don't know everyone. Well, <laughs> we know a few people that listen, but uh, you know what I mean? There's, uh, this sounds cheesy, but you know when you throw kind of something out into the universe, as they yeah. say, um, yeah. something comes back. Are you open to if if there's anyone listening that you know a light bulb or they think well you'd be excellent to help us with this or you know are you open to to offers so to speak yeah. if we call it that? I, I'm always open because I think the universe finds <laughs> you, and and in that yeah. sense. I appreciate the fact that you've kind of thought me worthy of coming on and having a conversation because I will go away from this and I'll self-criticize myself and go, I shouldn't have said that and I should have said that. <laughs> so I'll be doing well, an analysis for about another two days of what I've said. So if people think well, I've said anything interesting, I am more than open to the idea because I just find people fascinating and I love the idea that we have the capacity to learn and connect and these forums make that possible. And, you know, it's just... It's, I what I was going to say was I the podcast the podcast format is made for you. You're you're very engaging. Um, you and I'm not saying you necessarily wanted this, but you've got a very good story to tell. Which life, you know, the life you've led, it's it's incredibly engaging in the way you tell it. So you know, there's no need to, you know, critique what you've said today. It, it it's been very very good. But what I think, even if 
you didn't do anything more than this, but if you appeared on more podcasts, I think the value you would give to the people listening is is immense. And and just the way you speak and and you you obviously kept talking about, you know, how you don't want to come across as arrogant or anything like that. You far from it. Um, you know, I, I have met arrogant people that are more than happy to tell you, you know, how great they are at things, but you don't come across like that. And I think I don't know if it helps you on your side, but it definitely helps those that will be listening to this. Mm. And I think just speaking to uh, this format, I think, has a lot to offer. And I think that you have a lot to offer it. So even if you do anything, nothing more than just speak to people, I think it would be quite beneficial for just the people that listen. But I would hope it would have some big benefits for you as well. Because I think you, I don't know, you, Simon, you, you, Tell me if I'm wrong here, but you you come across so well, and and it's just really engaging to hear someone like yourself be so brutally honest about subjects or a subject that most people are too scared to even ask a question around. So you know, it's it's incredible, and you can do it on your terms, Dave. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I was very kind of. I had to run it by my friends and my mum to come on because I was like, I might make a complete tit of myself. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't. <laughs> so um, I'm really thankful of your kind words and compliments because again it took me to probably I was 40 years of age to accept any compliment because I just never felt as worthy of anything and there's a you bit here that goes oh okay yeah. um, so if you think I'm you know that's a little niche I've enjoyed doing this and yeah. it's kind of um, it, I do think I've got a story to tell and, and if I can make a difference I would love to be in that position where you know, it's a bit like dropping a stone in a pond. Yeah. If I can be the, the stone that creates a ripple and helps people, then that makes all the struggles and the challenges and the tough times worth it. Um, and again, you know, if, if you think people want to hear my dulcet tones, you know, I won't break into song, but, uh, you know, I'm happy to talk on most subjects. And, and I've learned that in terms of, you know, some things I've said today, I've gone, oh, my mum would slap me wrist and say, you know, you've, you've been a bit harsh. But I think challenge, even if it comes across harsh or a bit blunt, if you make someone stop and think, mm. you've done a good thing. Because if you let the status quo just stay as it is, we never get progress. Mm. And there's what's it to say, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So criticism exactly, yeah. in my world isn't a bad thing. And if people kind of counteract my views and things, I like listening to that because I only better myself by being challenged by others mm. and being told, Dave, have you thought about this differently? So I, I love this concept of talking in a round table and, and mm. hearing different people's opinions and different people's ideas and life stories. Cause I think that's the universality of, um, is it tithing? That's the thing of giving out and mm. it kind of being projected round. Um, so yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm quite. Ooh, okay, I've done all right. <laughs> I suppose just to get this in now before I forget, because I always forget. If well, I know there will be people listening that want to follow you or hear more from you. What's the best way for them to keep um, in touch with you? You mentioned obviously LinkedIn, but are you on any other social media platforms, or what's what's I, the best way to connect with you? I suppose I would say that's probably the best way because I think Simon will probably recognise this. I mm. I come and go in patterns, so part of the reason I post on LinkedIn is my thoughts 
are often better out than in. And even if they might be controversial or they might come across in a certain way, it's to give my head clearing space. So I have light bulb moments and I keyboard it. I've got to get it out. So in terms of the mental health space, LinkedIn is a good kind of space to be um, mm -hmm. for me and contact me. Um, you know, I, th I think it's, it's the identity section of my world that I want to share in this space. Because again, in my kind of Dave world, we're all different and there's some bits mm. where you go, okay, you know, my gym side is is one side, my kind of um, just things that interest me, like I post lots of quotes and stuff and things, but in terms of this space of mental health and talking to people and being visible and accessible, they'll get a flavor of me by what I post and what I share and they'll see that I'm transparent and I'm kind of honest and I think it's almost like I have to be like Hong Kong Fui. I've got a filing cabinet and I jump in yeah. depending on what, you know, which drawer opens, you get a different kind of move. So I have my <laughs> mental health moves. I have my physical health move. So uh, yeah. So a long winded answer to a short question is LinkedIn will LinkedIn. give people a, a true sense of this part of me that is relevant to this aspect of life. Well, what we'll do is we'll add your a link to your profile on the uh, on the, the show notes that go out on all the platforms, so people can actually connect with you. So we need to stop making these references to eighties, late seventies. <laughs> so we had a guest the other week. And he was talking, yeah, he, the, another guy was talking about MFI. It's like we're <laughs> losing anyone under the age of about four, uh, maybe like thirty-five. I think. Yeah, we're we're, we're closing in on our own demographic uh just our own like, kind of a mirror of who we are yeah <laughs> excellent so dave we always ask um anyone who comes as a guest do they have a quote or statement or philosophy that they live by and that's why dr naomi she uh kindly gave us a, a poem but is there anything that um you live your life by that you you think other people will resonate with or you'd yeah. be happy to share yeah my one is always head for day always head for safety rather than try to run away from danger right yeah so it's that yeah. philosophy of you know when you see the films the person that's being chased by the body that looks backwards falls over the tree and gets caught yeah that's yeah. the nature of <laughs> you know mental health is that it'll bite you on the bum so even if you're scared and you're kind of not quite sure you're going as long as you're looking forward you give mm. your chance to yourself to get there because you can see what's coming so yeah so always head for safety rather than try and run away from danger excellent yeah thank you very much for that so um David, is there anything else that you would like to share um, before we depart today? Or have um, you, you know, because it can be quite emotional talking about this stuff for yeah. quite a long time. And yeah. Making sure, you know, uh, you're in a good place around. You know, yeah. It's, again, it'll be, um, it's, I'm comfortable. People find it weird. I can be very comfortable talking about surviving attempted murder and losing a child and kind of, mm. but, it's real life. It's happened. If I go back to that vulnerability, I'm discrediting the work that I've put in and it doesn't change it. It hurts like shit. You know, mm. it's very painful. And there's a bit of me that is so damaged by those situations. Um, but again, it's, it's showing that victims of life can present as wonders of life. 
the the ability to hold your head high and the ability to normalize a shitty situation makes you a remarkable person and i think it's that that you know we all have journeys we all have stories and i probably sit in the middle ground as people that have got a lot worse stories in terms of experience than i have but everything's personal to our sense of self our sense of being and for me i'll probably have a couple of sleepless nights like reflecting on it because it'll it'll have triggered a part of my brain Mm-hmm. But I'm not upset by it because I think sometimes speaking your truth and getting it out there allows your cognition to work in a better way than holding it in and trying to protect yourself from the emotion. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really a big crier. I should do more of crying. Um, but in terms of emotional regulation, you know, I'm familiar with telling my story and yes there's a bit of me that's pissed off with the fact that um a 52 year old who who's in pain and has mental health challenges but i'm incredibly proud that i've outlived expectations because i was told i wouldn't get to 25. Mm-hmm. Yeah. so i've got 27 years of brilliance in terms yeah. of seeing like mobile phones and not having to write you know girlfriend's numbers on the back of your hand and losing it because you sweat in the nightclub and it rubbed off or I've seen the space shuttle go up, or I've seen Scotland qualify for two Euro championships in a row. Rugby because we're crap at that. Oh, oh I, I don't know. Think, yeah, they were pretty good. Yeah. You know, they they destroyed us in the Six Nations, I think. Yeah. Um, so, David, it, it's been an absolute pleasure, and we always look at the time and go, "Blimey, it's really almost yeah. two hours gone past." It, it's felt like it, it's been five minutes. You know, and you were talking about some challenging topics, but yeah. it was still, you know, uh, engaging, like Dave said, and really insightful for us. And I'm sure the people who've listened as well will embrace, you know, that openness, that vulnerability, that willingness to go, you know what, we all face um, difficult things in life. And I really like that sentiment at the end. If we share it, changes our cognition, gets us to yeah. just start to learn off each other. And that's why me and Dave do this. It is to get that variety of different perspectives from different people and just go, you know what? Um, We've not thought of it in that way. And it's lovely to get a different insight on the world and how people perceive things. So just want to thank you very much for giving up your time, coming on and sharing your your story with us. Uh, And it's it's been amazing for us just to be able to to sit and listen to the the way that you perceive world and the way that you like uh, to share things uh, with others, which is, you know, been fabulous for us to listen to. Well, thank you yeah. so much. It's like, it's really kind of um, nice to have uh, been invited and, and say, it's just keep doing the good work. And it's, it's nice that we connected via LinkedIn and it's created yeah, this opportunity yeah. and you can put a voice and a face that's animated instead of a still picture at the top of the screen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah massively. Yeah. Because I don't know why I thought you were from Liverpool for some reason. I don't no, went know why. To U- went to Union Liverpool. Ah, you went to ah. Liverpool. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know why. I thought you were a Scouser. So when you came on and you didn't sound Scouser, I was like, is it the same guy? But I, well, built, I built up this picture in my mind that you were a Scouser <laughs> for some reason. Well, one last thing just before we nip off. This will make you smile even more. I had to reapply for my job because they were changing contracts. And I yeah. turned up and I got called into the interview room. Five minutes into the interview room, the woman kind of nudges a colleague. They open the laptop and they go, um, can we see your passport? I was like, yeah. And they went, um, you're not Julie, are you? 
Yeah. 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 And I, went, I was like, no, I'm Dave. And I went, changed a bit, yeah. yeah. So, and you could see him thinking, oh, who is okay. And basically they went, you're not here for the psychologist role then. I was like, I wish I was, but no. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. the look of shock when they realized I wasn't Julie, but they didn't know how to ask me. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially in these modern days, yeah, you, know, you they, could have been Julie at some point. It's precarious, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, Dave, yeah. thank you very much. Okay, yeah, uh, enjoy the rest that, of your evening. And, yeah, have uh, a great one. I'm off to the osteopath now, so have a great time and continue doing the brilliant work. And uh, I'll try and follow some more of your podcasts because it's fascinating world for me. Yeah, brilliant. brilliant. Well, thank you very much, and all the best. Please do. Uh, Thanks and, for uh, that. Catch you later. Bye for now. Ta-da.